You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. From Town and Once to What the Constitution Means to Me and Now Slave Play. For over 40 years, the New York Theater Workshop has been known for its provocative, challenging theater. But no other theatrical work has made a bigger cultural impact than Rent, Jonathan Larson's landmark musical, which began life at the New York Theater Workshop in 1993, and then later went on to sweep at the 1996 Tony Awards, as well as winning a Pulitzer Prize for drama. This year marks the 25th anniversary of the show, and I'm thrilled to welcome Rent's original Roger, Adam Pascal, New York Theatre Workshop's Artistic Director, James Nicola, and my friend, Andy Senor Jr., whose documentary, Revolution Rent, is set to be released this summer. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. So... I'm a total rented, first of all, full confession, and so were my three daughters. I can't even count the number of times that we saw the show or spent time singing along to the cast album at home or during car rides. But Rent is so much more than a musical. It's, it took on major social and political issues, and it's basically a story of love and giving. And the intention when I created this podcast was really about all of those things. So to me, this um, podcast, this recording when having you all as guests is so very important to me. Um, Adam, I want to start with you. Um, we were just chatting with it. We've probably met each other at different Broadway and Broadway or Stars in the Alley or Tony's concerts and things. Um, but I had heard a story and I want to find out if it's true that 25 years ago, you, um, you didn't even really know about rent and was it something about Adina Menzel asked you to audition or connected you somehow? What's the story? Well, l- let me start by saying 25 years ago, nobody knew about Red. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I was personally in the dark <laughs> on something. I did not have any prior theater experience uh, to prior to Red. Uh, I grew up playing in rock bands. And I also grew up as a down-the-street neighbor of Idina Menzel. Um, and so I've known her since third grade. And, you know, we went to elementary school all through high school together. Um, and stayed friends, you know, and and so um, she uh, she had been cast as Maureen 
in the New York Theater Workshop production of the show and knew that they were having trouble casting this role of Roger. And she thought of me because they uh, they had opened up the casting. She knew that I grew up playing in bands and that I didn't have theater experience, but she also knew that they opened up the casting to people with, you know, who didn't necessarily have any prior theater experience. And so she thought of me and called me up and asked me if I wanted to uh, to audition for it. And that's that's how I got in there. And that's how I got in there. So you've played Roger yeah. on Broadway um, and the West End. I think it was in 2005 to maybe 2009, you were, was it, you were touring all over the US and in I think the Far East. Um, and I just, I, I've, I saw you everywhere, um, but <laughs> your performances and, and I guess getting the authentic rock band guy was really a good move for, um, for the show. But I wanted to ask you that role, um, I mean, you you embodied it in, in in every way, and I just wondered what that role meant to you, both professionally and personally. That's that, that's a very complicated answer, <laughs> um, because 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 you know what? Because the real answer would take some time, you know, because it's meant it's meant it's meant everything, but it's also been like you know. Uh, the best and worst thing that's ever happened to me in, in, cer- in certain respects, you know what I mean? And to go into what all of that means would take a long time. <laughs> but I would say certainly the, the best outweighs the worst in, in terms of what it's done for me in my life and my connection to it. And, my, and, my, and I, you know, I really wouldn't have the life that I have, you know, as difficult at times as it may be. <laughs> it's still a wonderful life, you know, and uh you know, I wouldn't have met the woman who ultimately I married and then became the mother of my children. I wouldn't have my children. I wouldn't have my career that I adore. I wouldn't have, you know, I just, I, there, I, I just, I wouldn't have any of this, you know, because I wouldn't have known. <laughs> I wouldn't have known that doing theater was what I should be doing, mm. you know. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's like rent, rent called to me and it pulled me in and, and not just for its own sake, <laughs> but for the sake of, you know, you know, exposing me to where this path that I belonged on. Speaking of, of, of that path, um, Jim, I want to ask you, I mean, rent was such a hot ticket. It, it was kind of like the Hamilton of its day, I guess. Um, but take us back in history. How did the initial workshop come about? And tell us, you know, tell us what happened back then. And, and obviously we're going to, you know, we have to talk and we need to talk about Jonathan Larson and, and I would love to hear from all three of you how you felt about Jonathan. We were a very different organization at that time. We were still fledgling. Um, we moved to the East Village from the West Village. We were at the Perry Street Theater and we moved to our own home instead of renting a place. Interesting. That word comes up. Um, and we were thinking about how do we make roots here in this new new community that we're a part of, that we'd like to speak to or we'd like to engage with. And as the fates would have it, Jonathan Larson rode by as we were renovating the space, thought this is the perfect space for this musical that I'm working on about the East Village, dropped it off. The associate artistic director, Chris Kravaski, listened to the first tape that was Jonathan singing all the songs and brought it to me and said, you should listen to this. You should look at this. And that was 92, the summer of 92, we were moving into the space and renovating. So he came by at that point. And then the spring of 93 was the first reading that we actually did of, of that first rough draft. The thing that um, in retrospect that is distinctive to me about his vision, 
Jonathan's vision for this piece. In this initial stage directions, it says there's a rock band on stage and a traditional Broadway orchestra in the pit. And that was very appealing to me in the sense of it was a synthesis mm. to something new that was taking two different traditions and melding them to make this new form. And that was very exciting to me that he was not, um, he was not approaching it as an iconoclast in the sense of like, throw it all out and I'm gonna make it new again. He was gonna make it new again by building on what existed and making it speak and sing to a new generation with a different set of ears. Over that next two or three years, we worked extensively uh, in process on it. It was pretty bumpy. I think the quest there was um, from that first cassette tape with him singing, the third song that I heard on that cassette tape was Light My Candle. And it was in that moment that I understood this is a special gift this guy has because he's not only fulfilling the genre of a pop song, he's also made a dramatic scene. He's, so he's got the gift of theater making, telling a story in the theater, and he can write a fantastic pop song. And that was kind of what sold me on it. It was like, okay, here we're going forward. As we worked, I think we discovered that he was a much, much more fluent songwriter than he was a playwright. And that was always the, the focus of the work in the, in the development was like, how do we make the story assemble to hit these songs and release them um, to reveal the glory that they were? Wow. You know, I'm sure all of you have been asked so many times, but you know, when, when Jonathan passed away and you had just done your first invited dress, right? Isn't that what it, and it was that night. Um, and then the next day you went on with the show and you performed, um, you know, that must've been so devastating. Um, but any, any specific memories of, of, of that or anything, you know, what motivated you all that next day, just being together or how did you cope with it? <laughs> well, I, got a phone call at eight in the morning, which, you know, anyone who's, who lives in the, works in the theater knows don't call anyone at <laughs> eight in the morning. <laughs> um, so it was really unusual and I was a little, mm. um, and it was our production manager saying that she'd been on the phone with the police and that Jonathan had, was dead. And I said, I'm getting dressed and I'm gonna be at the theater. We'll start calling the cast. Um, so we rounded up people from our artistic community, the usual suspects, and we called the cast and we said, just come here, come to the theater, spend the day. We don't know what's gonna happen, but we all need to be together. And Adam probably remembers a lot from that day as well. It was, a, it was a, an emotional day for sure, but I think the gathering part of it was the profound experience of it. And somehow in the middle of all that, we had to make a decision about whether there was going to be a first preview or not. And late in the afternoon, Jonathan's parents arrived from New Mexico and they kind of solidified what we had all been thinking, which is the worst thing that could happen at eight o'clock tonight is for this not to be in the air, for this not to be out there. So <laughs> Jonathan's parents said yes. And we, we canceled the performance but we invited family and friends to be in that room. Um, and that was 
maybe the most memorable performance ever, I think. I um, had the privilege and honor to sit with Jonathan's parents and sister at Tick, Tick, Boom when Lynn and Leslie and Karen um, performed it. And I, I was just crying through the entire thing because I was just, you know, they, they were amazing people. Um, you know, I now want to pivot a little bit to Andy. Um, Andy, my dear friend, um, you um, you made your Broadway debut playing Angel, and then you went on to perform at, on the West End and on the tour, um, both nationally and internationally. Um, what was it like stepping into this iconic character, and how did all this come about for you? Well, the first time I heard about Rent, uh, I was in theater history class uh, at FIU in Miami. And uh, my, I, I'll never forget, I, perfect, that was like two o'clock in the afternoon and my professor, Theral Todd, he lifts, he lifts up a magazine and, and it's the Newsweek uh, cover of uh, Adam and, and Daphne with, Daph with, with Daphne and Adam on it. <clears throat> and he's like, this is changing theater. He said something like that. And I was like, what is that? And then I was like, they look really sexy. What, what, I wonder what that is. And then they started he started posting all these photos on, on his door um, of his office. Then I watched the Tony Awards. And um, when, well, first of all, you know, hearing Seasons of Love, watching Lovey Bohème, I was just like, you know, I, I used to watch the Tony Awards all the time. But this was, and, you know, I had never seen anyone that, looked like me, uh, you know, Hispanic kid from Miami, like, and, and, you know, I was studying theater, but I thought, oh, maybe I'll be in, in the ensemble of a show or something, God knows. But when, you know, when I saw Wilson uh, win the award uh, for Angel, the Tony Award, I was like, oh, he looks like me. I, I, and it made me even more curious about the show. And, and then, you know, just waited until the soundtrack came out memorized every single word um you know it was like you know there was no youtube or anything back then so like if they were if the, if the cast was on rosie o'donnell i was like oh, wow if they were on jay leno i had my little vhs with all my little clippings um <laughs> uh, and just fascinated uh you know the, the music was sensational for i i, I grew up listening to to, to rock music um, that's what I learned to sing to, but I was doing musical theater in school. So it was, a, it was the perfect blend for me. Um, and then, uh, when I was auditioning for grad schools, um, Michael Greif was, uh, the, the, the artistic director for La Jolla Playhouse. And, uh, he saw me do my two monologues. And then afterwards he, he asked me, like, can you sing? And I just, the first thing that came out of my mouth was like, like a bird. <laughs> And then he was like, okay. Um, and so he, he arranged an audition for me in New York. Um, and I went to New York for the first time. And I walked into, I think, what was a final callback with all my angel material. And I did all my songs. And um, uh, 24 hours later, I got the call uh, from Bernie's office letting me know that, you know, th what they said to me was like, it's time, you know, it's time to drastically change your life. Um, and that's, that's literally what Heidi Marshall said. Um, and I mean, and it really has. Uh, you know, this was in back in 1997 for the LA company. And Rent has been uh, a 
huge part of my life since not only as a performer but as a as a director um you know mounting all the different productions that I do all over the world and and I hope that that the show continues to be a, a big part of what it is that I occupy my time with um while I've got you talking about this um can you talk a little bit about um the film coming out and and I was lucky enough to see some of the rough cuts um, early on and I can't wait to see the final cut, but take us through that journey about you making the film. Yeah, in um, 2014, uh, the Cuban Ministry of Culture um, and the Nederlander Worldwide, they invited me to go to Havana, Cuba to, uh, put, up, uh, to put up rent there. And it was the first uh, cultural project between the United States and Cuba. Um, uh, what was significant about that for me was that my parents are both Cuban exiles and they both, uh, they, they vowed to never return to Cuba until it was a free country. So when they learned uh, about the, the prospects of me going to Havana, they, my whole family, my community, everybody was very much against me going and very upset with it. And, you know, at that point I had already been to, you know, as a performer all over the world and I had already directed it in in uh in uh in japan so i was like of course i'm gonna go I, i'm absolutely gonna go this is for the artists and and uh i'm absolutely going and and knowing the power of the show knowing the message of the show knowing what this that rehearsal process does for a cast uh, i was absolutely gonna gonna do it and i'm going to bring somebody to film this because god knows what's gonna happen mm. um for, you know, I, I've tended to do the show during very strange times. You know, I, when we were doing the show in London, there was a bomb that went off at one of the gay bars around the corner. Uh, when I was doing the show in New York on Broadway, 9-11 happened. When we did the Asia tour in China, it was the bird flu. So I was like, you know, I'm going to communist Cuba mm -hmm. to put up rent. What could possibly happen? <laughs> but what ended up happening was that... Um, Six days before uh, the opening of the show, which was on December 24th, uh, Obama uh, declared the normalization between the two countries. And we just happened to be there. We happened to be in rehearsals and watching it, all of us together uh, around the television. And so that all of that is in the documentary uh, Revolution Rent, which really just captures that whole entire journey and that particular window in time. Amazing. So New York Theatre Workshop is doing um, basically a, a big gala um, celebrating Rent's 25th anniversary. Um, and you have a crazy amount of talent um, that are going to be joining you for that, uh, for that performance, um, virtual gala, I guess. Tell us about it. Um, what, can, what can us Rent heads expect with that? Well, it's a peculiar moment to try and do any sort of celebration of anything in this non-gathering place and there's some sadness I feel about not being able to be in a room together and, and mark this occasion. But that said, the rough cut that I have seen of this streamed event, I'm starting to cry. It, it, it just overwhelmed me. I think it's going to be a very special celebration. Ticket sales are amazing. There are people all over the world that are going to be at this event that we could not have in a room, you know, in a, in a someplace in Manhattan to celebrate in the old way. So I think it's, there's something wonderful about that. And I think uh, what I came out of watching that rough cut the other day with thinking about was 
it, it was this actually was the first moment 25 years later that I've been able to sit through anything to do with rent and appreciate it just for this beautiful piece of work that it is, as opposed to someone who's thinking about, oh my God, this song, you know, that that in that time after Jonathan had died and we were in previews, that, that sense of, but we're unfinished. We've got the show to do. And I think I've been in that mode ever since. And to actually sit and take it in for the beautiful thing that it is in and of itself was an incredible gift. And I think it really speaks to this moment that we're in. Um, Cause ultimately to me, it's about community. It's about feeling like you're an outsider or that there's no one else like you on the planet. And then you find your tribe, you find your group and you celebrate that. And I feel like we're all feeling isolated and alone and without our tribe. And it really, it really hit me. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So speaking of feeling isolated alone, this year, well, 2020 and now 2021, are obviously really tough years for everyone, um, particularly for people who work in the in the industry. Um, and I just wondered, you know, how are you all coping between, you know, COVID and systemic racism and all the political upheaval and just, you know, how are you doing, Adam? How are you doing? Um, <laughs> well, you know, um, it's been. I'll start by saying the obvious. It's been incredibly hard. I've also had, you know, I just, it just happens to be that this year has been incredibly hard for me personally, things in my personal life, you know what I mean? Like things have just, it's, it's so, so things have been, it have been particularly difficult. Um, but that being said, you know, I think I'm doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, which is I, I'm, I'm clawing to the next day. I'm clawing to the next week and I'm clawing to the next month, you know what I mean? And I'm just like getting to the next closer to whatever it is that a return to normalcy will be. We just have to keep clawing ourselves to get there, you know, not clawing, you know, clawing all along to get there. And, 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 uh, um, you know, uh, some days are okay. And some days are not okay. You know what I mean? I, you know, I think it's going to take many, many years for the, 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 the mental health of this entire planet to return to anywhere near normal you know, after what we've gone through as a world with not just COVID, but the political situation and Trump and all. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just been an, an unbelievably stressful time, certainly the most stressful time in my life, you know. Um, it's like, it, it was, it's like we lived through like what, what, what the, what the immediate aftermath of 9-11 felt like, like within like the, those, those few months after 9 it's like we've been living through that 
<laughs> you know, for the past, you know, year and a half or whatever it feels like, you know, that intensity of, of what that was like. Exactly. And, you know, when you think about 9-11, I just remember how the theater community banded together and that sense of, you know, back to what you were saying about being connected and community. And I feel like that, even if it's virtual, I'm sending you a massive virtual hug through the zoom here, but I think there is there, there that I think people are connecting and finding creative ways to connect. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. What about you, Andy? Um, I've had a very interesting uh, pandemic year. Uh, it started off with me flying to, uh, in the, at the very beginning of the pandemic, in the, at, the, at the beginning of the shutdown, I flew to Korea to mount rent there, um, which was <laughs> that whole experience of just the travel, the quarantine, the government checking up on me, it, it, and the rehearsal process, opening the show was really, really intense. Um, but we got the show open um, and uh, it, it was very interesting for, for the Korean company to understand what was going on back in, uh, you know, in, in, in the 90s, uh, uh, but in present day context. Um, so that was really interesting. Then this past fall, I was supposed to go to Japan to mount the show, uh, but since Japan was closed, I had to direct the entire show uh, over Zoom. <sighs> <laughs> which was insane. Uh, I was like, I don't understand how we're going to do this. Uh, double cast in Japanese. Um, so that was, again, an, a, 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 a learning experience, but the show got, uh, got, got up and running. And then three performances in the, the whole cast got COVID. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After all that work, um, and then uh, had to had to shut down. And then shortly after that, I've been working on um, um, the Rent 25. Um, and that has been just so, so, so special. Just uh, being able to sit uh, with, you know, you know, because part of it is, is very much a documentary. Um, and so being able to not only to, to you know, work with New York Theatre Workshop and, and the amazing team that's there and, and, and sculpt and create this thing that we're, that we're doing, but to uh, hear uh, the different stories uh, from the original cast, from uh, new cast members, uh, their perspectives on, uh, and all the very different perspectives um, has been wild. I've learned so much. Uh, and, and, you know, I've been with this show for so many years, uh, but I, I've, you know, things that, that, that I just had no idea about that I just, you know, so yeah, it's been, it's, it's, it's been a, a, a year of rent, um, but fantastic. So Jim, I'm going to ask you this question, the same question, but also I'm going to ask you, how has New York Theatre Workshop dealt with all of this? And, um, you know, particularly, you know, this being a podcast about philanthropy on your fundraising side, um, you know, things have to be done very differently. So how's, how's all that going for you? Well, it, uh, not like any other year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think we've tried to figure out how do we, well, how do we sustain, but most importantly, how do we do our core mission, which is to support artists when there is no way to make that happen. 
So we have um, been working in a, we created a cohort largely with 25 artists, probably half of them from artists, writers and directors mostly whose projects were interrupted either last season or things that were in this, what was supposed to be this season. And we gave them a small grant each in late June and said, think about what you might be able to do in a sphere that is not gathering in a room, but might be online, might be in Zoom, might be in some other platform, might be outside. What would you do? Um, and let us know and then we'll see what we can do. So that early August, those plans and dreams started to come in. And from September onward, we've been trying to realize those inventions. Um, and that has been a thrill. I feel like this period of time, this, this look at what, what was created in this moment at New York Theatre Workshop will be such a beautiful little thing. It's in and of itself, the whole collection. The big learning thing for me was that when we set out on that instigation, I thought we were asking theater people to make theater in another medium. And what I soon quickly learned watching what the artists' imaginations yielded, there's no theater. This is not theater. This is some wonderful other art form, but it's not. Theater is a thing that happens in time and space in a room and it's a ritual reenactment and people gather. That's theater. This is not, it's something really exciting and interesting. It's also not content. It's not Netflix. It's not the networks. It's something in between. And there are no rules. We're making it up as we go. Um, and that was terrifying and frustrating and full of mistakes. I'm talking about the cast, the staff, trying to realize all of this. Um, but we also learned and we bonded in a whole new way. So I feel excited about it. I feel the thing I keep coming back to is the 21st century of theater making is arriving. And we are in the pangs of the, the death throes of the 20th century and the emergence of the 21st. And who knows what it's gonna look like. I do know the core thing is never gonna change. We're never not gonna gather in a room together, shoulder to shoulder and watch amazing gifted artists up there but everything else is under is uh you know up for grabs very exciting it is exciting you made me get tears in my eyes um <laughs> so this podcast i i i started it and i i really wanted to inspire people to talk about philanthropy and what that means to them and social activism and to motivate people to to do more and give. Um, Adam, you have always given of your talents and your time to so many causes over the years. And I just wondered, you know, if you look at the word philanthropist, what does that mean to you? And maybe that's not the right word. You know, maybe it's social activist or maybe it's being of service, but you know, how would you, how would you define this whole, this whole idea and what does it mean to you personally? Um, well, I, you know, I've just always um, felt so fortunate and honored that there was something that I was able to offer that somebody would want to use to bring attention to whatever it is that they were trying to bring attention to, you know, it, and, and so like, you know, I, I, I pretty much, you know, 
I don't have a lot of personal causes myself. You know, my cause is like, is like goodness in the world. You know what I mean? So like, I'll do almost anything I'm asked to do if it's a, if it's a good cause, you know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll sing a song or I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, especially now during Zoom, I've done so many recordings of just performances of songs, you know, for this exact, for that exact thing, you know what I mean? And, and, and so I've, I've actually been able to do more under these particular circumstances. Um, but, you know, um, I'm actually, uh, you know, I, I'm a very, believe it or not, uh, uh, I, I, I'm a pessimist, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm, a, and I'm a, gla- a glass half empty guy. I'm a glass all empty guy, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, um, and so I do want things to be better. And, 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 and I want to, you know what I mean? I want to feel like maybe there's something I can do to make anything better. You know, that's one of the great things about being, you know, in a show like Rent was like, we knew we were not just entertaining people. We were doing, we were making things better. We were making people's lives better, even for maybe even just for the moment. But like we were, you know, we were putting out an energy and a message and a vibe and a whole, that was like just better it was it was betterment for the world you know what i mean what we were doing and what that show does and continues to do will always do because of the nature of what it is you know what i mean absolutely and andy same for you i mean you know we've gotten to know each other because of you know some of the philanthropic work that you've done what what motivates you and and, and what would you you know if you were going to talk to fans or you know broadway folks that don't sing or dance or have a platform, you know, how would you advise people to get involved? Um, how would I advise people to get involved? You know, I think, I, I think you just have to listen. And once you listen, just respond. I think that, I, I, I think the way I like to approach it is from a very intimate place. And it's, it's in the circle around you. Like there's, you know, in a certain sense, the world's on fire, and 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 there, there's help is wanted all over the place. Uh, for a few days ago, one of my cast members from Cuba, he writes me on Facebook, and he's like, "I need to get out of here." I, he's like, "I cannot. I'm HIV positive. I can't. I cannot get my medicines. I'm nowhere near the list that I need to be on in order to get my medicines." And 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 it's just it's so bad here. I don't I don't know what else to do. And so we've been spending, you know, uh, we've been going on this back and forth um, in conversations, just like trying to figure out, you know, what can, what, what can be done so that, you know, now that becomes my next quote unquote project. I think it's, you know, I, I try not to look at it on these like huge scale, like and I'm going to now create a not-for-profit or this and that. I just think that it's, it's, you know, I like to approach it, you know, person by person by person by person. And, and I think if you're available and you make yourself available, people will ask you. And, and, and if they're not asking you, then ask yourself, why aren't people asking me? (laughs) Maybe I need to make myself available in a very particular way so that, so that, you know, people can count on me. Um, But I like the idea of being of service versus uh, that's, that's how I, that's the term that I would use. Um, and that can happen just with one person that, you know, it could happen on the street with a little old lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just a way of being, uh, a, a constant way of being uh, and interacting in life. 
So I have one last question for all three of you. Um, I've been asking my guests, if you could wave a magic wand, what changes would you want to see when theater reopens? You can be sort of cerebral about it, or you could be very specific. I've had all kinds of answers. I want more money, more <laughs> money. I want more money. Bigger salaries for actors. That's what I want. <laughs> no, in all honesty, though, <laughs> yes, of course, I do want that. But but no, I, I, I would love to see, and I think we certainly will see a... Um, uh, a drop in initial ticket prices as as the attempt to get audiences to come back to theater, uh, you know, takes over. And and then, but I I hope we don't see the which the, will probably be probably be the inevitable uptick of those prices over the course of the next few years back up to the crazy, you know, amounts that that get charged. Um, because I, you know, I, I think it just, you know, look, it's the, we've been having this conversation for years, you know, one of the main arguments is that it just alienates so many people from from the opportunity of seeing, you know, this incredible art form that we all work so hard at and, and you know, and, and love so much. So. so money, okay, on all sides. Money, yeah. Andy, what about you? Oof, that's a really hard one. Um, because I've been seeing theater just pretty much around the world. And the, you know, I live in Barcelona, I'm working in, in, in Asia, but also working in the United States and theater takes different forms. And well, it's also interesting because you do have that international perspective, which a lot of us don't have as you, and especially the, um, you know, from the, from the far East where, you know, if you look at COVID and how they've handled COVID is so different than what we've done. Um, so I would, I would, I wondered if there was anything that you've seen or experienced that, you know, something that you, we think you think we should bring to the U S to do, you know, you know, if I were, if, if or, not, or not do, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it was a wand over the U S I think it would be freedom to like, like unconstrained, you know, like forget about the, you know, I mean, a show has to be successful in order to make money and so forth, but like a real sense of, 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 of creative freedom uh, as, that wasn't bound so much about uh, with, within the business, although I, I, the business is incredibly important. Um, maybe it's over the audiences as to less the theater, but more like the audiences to be open. And, you know, actually, how about this? I would wave my wand around, um, audiences particularly hispanic audiences audiences of color to uh to to attend and and for ticket prices to be available um to 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 that uh to to those groups of people that's something that i would do uh, programs that would that would in that would inspire uh uh, you know, for example, I'm Hispanic, a Hispanic community to, to attend theater regularly, um, uh, to make it part of the culture. Great. And how about you, Jim? You'll have our, you'll have our last word. <laughs> well, there's a lot to say. This is a whole other subject. I think where I sit is in the place between we want lower ticket prices and we want everybody to be compensated better. Um, and I don't know how you put those two things together and, and have a functioning <laughs> system. You don't. <laughs> you don't. You don't. And we, we don't. We have the American system of providing the theatrical experiences is, is, is um, 
been made up over the last 50 years from minute to minute. The wonderful thing about it, and I, I realized I didn't really answer your question about philanthropy, um, but the thing that has been most, one of the most moving things over my time in the, the not-for-profit theater has been the collaboration that happens between a donor and the entity. And whether it's a theater or whether it's a social service organization, that sense of collaboration is profound. And I think when, a, when an organization, a not-for-profit organization is really functioning well, there is a sense of a community that we're doing something together. Um, I think what we need in the end when we come back is for all of us to understand that this moment of interruption exposed the flaws and weaknesses of our collective system and that we can make it better. We can work together, together. So in other words, um, things like the, the situation for a performer in the theater is now essentially defined by a negotiation between a labor union and a collective of management. And that's the solution. That's the way to an answer. And I think there's other answers, you know, that maybe, maybe the health care for a performer is better provided by national health care and not by an agreement between labor and management, which feels like uh, something from 1920, you know, that I hope, but that's what I'm hoping, that the theater comes back in the frame of a, an, of a culture whose imagination has been inflamed to really reconsider what we what agreements we've made and how can we do it better and and help everybody everybody in the culture benefit not just the one percent. So I'm actually going to have the last word because I'm going to just plug that everybody should buy tickets to go see the 25th anniversary of Rent performance on March 2nd and um, in our episode page. We'll put all the information in there in a link so people can go buy tickets. Yes, um, it was so great to talk to all three of you. And I'm actually glad that I could connect to you guys because it sounds like some of you haven't spoken or seen yes. each other for a while. So it was really nice Wonderful. to watch your reunion as well. Great. Um, thank you so much for being part of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Thank you. Bye. I love you guys. It's great to see you all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway Gives Back. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals with Brittany Bigelow and music by Eric Becker at Broderick Street Music. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, and friend, Jim Lochner, and to Katie and Yo at BPM, Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency, the Charity Network, and to my fiance, Glenn Weiss, who is always my consultant. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit bpn.fm slash Broadway Gives Back. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.